Amen, church family. If you would grab your copy of God's Word as you remain standing and turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Thank you so much, Miss Tammy and team, for filling in, doing a great job. We're so thankful for you. Um, we are actually going to attempt to cover uh, most of chapter 16, but we're going to pay special attention to Leviticus chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. Actually, this was the very first sermon I ever preached in the book of Leviticus. And it was funny, this week I was going back and listening to that. Uh, I think it was in 2018. Um, and I opened by saying, I would love to preach through this book one day. Um, and so um, I, I still do love preaching through this book. Uh, and so uh, we're going to read verses 20 through 22. Next week, we'll be actually returning to Leviticus 16 and finishing out the epilogue in verses 29 through 24. And so, uh, Leviticus 20 is where we'll begin. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His Word this morning. Gracious Father, we do pray to You that this, um, Your Word is what You would speak to us uh, through, as we know You're faithful to. Lord, we confess together that this is Your Word, that it is holy, it is inspired, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to convict us of our sin. It's able to teach us, correct us, rebuke us. It's able to build us as Your body. Lord, we also know that apart from the work of your spirit and apart from your grace, that it will do none of these things. So we pray for that grace now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work mightily among us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Most of us are probably at least vaguely familiar with the term whipping boy. You heard of this term before? All right, we, we may not understand its exact meaning or origin, but in the modern lexicon, a whipping boy denotes a person who is innocent, who takes the blame and punishment for someone who is guilty. That is a, a whipping boy. According to Wikipedia, the reliable source that it is, a whipping boy was originally a young boy assigned to a young prince who was punished when the prince misbehaved or fell behind in his schooling. The role of the whipping boy was actually established in the English court during the monarchs in the 15th and 16th centuries. Many English princes had courtiers of their age who would be punished and beaten in the place of their royal master as a way on educating him in matters of morality. How'd you like that job, kids? <laughs> right? Can you imagine? Look, the The prince refuses to eat his dinner, and so the whipping boy is called in and beaten in front of the prince in order to teach the prince that he needs to eat the food put in front of him. It's really hard to imagine that that was really in any way effective. But long before there were whipping boys, there were scapegoats. 
Like whipping boys, scapegoats were an innocent party that took upon themselves the punishments of others and bore them away from the community. The scapegoat was used to to carry Israel's sins away from the nation into the wilderness as it was cut off from the people of Israel and out of the presence of God. The scapegoat, you see, replaced Israel. It was Israel and its sin that should have been driven from the presence of God, but instead the scapegoat is what filled that role. And that's really the big idea of the passage we're going to look at today. In fact, if I could just say what chapter 16 is as a whole, I'll put that as our big idea. And and chapter 16 really is a manual for the Day of Atonement. It is a manual for the Day of Atonement. It addresses and instructs the priest on how they were to go about participating in the Day of Atonement in order to atone for the sins of the people. We're going to go through this and and see that this Day of Atonement really does communicate much to us about our Lord Jesus Christ as well. I want to start with this, though. Before we actually dive into the text, I want us to, to resonate in and understand the importance of the Day of Atonement. That's the first thing I want us to look at this morning, is the importance of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a significant day in the life of an ancient Israelite. It was celebrated on the tenth day of the seventh month, the seventh month being considered the most sacred month in the Israelite calendar. We also see its importance in the the single garb that is put on Aaron, the high priest, the, the meticulous and careful preparation that would have heightened the sense of solemnity of, of this event. The uniqueness of its rituals also post to the importance of the Day of Atonement, especially entering into the holy place, the Holy of Holies. This was only performed one day a year. So so one person, one day a year, was allowed to enter into the holy place. And the scapegoat ritual as well was a unique ritual in the light of the Israelite. The whole community was instructed to afflict itself and and practice self-denial on this one day a year. So the instructions for the uh, Day of Atonement even play a very pivotal place in where they're located in the book of Leviticus as a whole. And so for all of these reasons, it's very easy for us to understand why rabbis in that day just referred to the Day of Atonement as the day. It was the most significant day in the life of an Israelite. It was an important day, and so not surprisingly, we find in various and significant ways all kinds of types and shadows pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ. It was indeed an important day. As we go through the text now, I want us now to look at the ritual itself. We've seen the importance of the Day of Atonement, but I also want us to look at the ritual of the Day of Atonement. I want us to point out as we go ever so briefly... How Christ is actually the true and better scapegoat. He's the true and better fulfillment of all of these things, in fact, we find the Day of Atonement. Last week, if you remember, we looked at the prologue in verses 1 through 3. That that warning that God had given to Aaron that he was not to come whenever and however he wanted into the presence of the Lord. Instead, remember, the Lord would tell him exactly what way he would enter into the Holy of Holies. And we were reminded there that that teaches us that the Lord is holy and people are sinful. Therefore, people must be invited or called into God's presence and the Lord must lead the way into his own presence. 
Well, now in this chunk we're covering today, in verses 3 through 28, we find that Aaron and the high priests, um, we find exactly what is the way that Aaron and the high priest would succeed him who um, were to enter into the Holy of Holies. Sorry, let me say that sentence again. We find the way that Aaron and the high priest that would succeed him were to enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people. Uh, first, Aaron was to bathe himself. This is important. He was to take off his royal vestiges and bathe his body. Then he was to put on his linen, his undergarment, his coat, his sash and turban, all very simple attire. So, so get this, get this picture. And the Aaron's first thing he does is he takes off all of his royal garb, his royal attire. He bathes himself. Remember, he, if you, you remember in, um, in, when was it, Le, the consecration of the priests in Leviticus 8 and 9. Remember, he had that really fancy coat. He had the ephod and the breastplate because he was a high priest. They had a, all the precious stones on it. He even had a turban that had a crown on it. It was holy unto the Lord. This was royal attire. And for this very special day, He takes off all of that royal attire and he puts on the clothing of a servant. That sound familiar? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. What does that tell us? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. See, what Aaron foreshadowed by setting aside his royal garb and clothing himself with the clothes of a servant, Christ accomplished by setting aside his divine prerogatives and humbling himself by taking on a full human nature. Now, Christ, of course, did not just do that for another annual day of atonement, but instead he did that for the day of Calvary. The once and for all day of atonement that did away with the sin of God's people Forever. So after Aaron bathed himself and properly dressed himself, we find next in the text in chapter 16 that Aaron was to sacrifice for himself a bull and one for his family as well. One, a bull for himself and his family. Actually, it was really for the priesthood, for the Levites. So, so the high priest would, would take the bull, the uh, uh, blood from the bull into... Um, into the court of holies, and the high priest also took a censer of coals of uh, of fire into the most holy place, and he placed incense on it right before the mercy seat. And in doing that, it would create a cloud of incense that would cover the mercy seat. And he did all that so that Aaron would not die. Now, why would he die? Remember, Aaron was sinful. Aaron could not behold the glory of God and gaze unprotected unto the Lord. Now, there's no parallel to this to Christ, right? In fact, the exact opposite is true when it comes to Christ. We read in in Hebrews 7.27 that because Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, that He is separated from sin and exalted above the heavens, that He does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for His own sins and then for the people's. For this He did once for all. When he offered up himself. See the contrast? Aaron, before he was ever able to actually enter into the Holy of Holies, had to offer a sacrifice of purification for himself and his family. Christ had no need of that. He had no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily on behalf of himself. So after Aaron 
offers this purification offering. He, he takes the bull, he kills him, he brings the blood into the Holy of Holies, and Aaron made that atonement for himself. Well, then he took the two goats offered on behalf of the people. He cast lots for them. He designates one for the Lord and one for the scapegoat. A goat that goes away carrying all of Israel's sin into the wilderness. And after Aaron determines the fate of the two goats, he takes the one designated as the purification offering and he sacrifices it. As he did with the blood of the bull that was sacrificed on behalf of himself and the priest, Aaron takes the blood into the Holy of Holies to offer it as a purification offering. Again, the writer of Hebrews makes clear that this ministry on the Day of Atonement, it foreshadowed the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, the writer tells us, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's the picture. Aaron entering into the Holy of Holies in order to make atonement for the people. Yet, Christ, the better high priest, enters once and for all into the Holy of Holies, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption once for all done. Back to Aaron. Aaron, after cleansing the Holy of Holies, the the tent of meeting, Aaron took the blood of the bull and the goat and purified the blood of, of burnt offerings as well. And he's now working his way out. He started in the Holy of Holies, into the tent of meeting, finally to the altar of the burnt offering. In fact... This, this Day of Atonement actually covers the ritual geog- geography of Israel itself. It, it moves from the very heart of their worship into the Holy of Holies to the wilderness as the goat is taken to a place that is cut off. And then next, Aaron took the scapegoat, placed both his hands on it, and confessed all the iniquities, transgressions, and sins of the people over it. The goat was then given to someone... To lead the goat far away from the camp. In our text, in verse 21, it says, by the hand of a suitable man. Actually, I think the ESV renders this, or the NASB renders this, as the one who stands in readiness. That is one assigned to the task to take the goat away. Aaron, after being bathed once again, he changes back into his normal high priest royal attire and performs two burnt offerings, one for the priesthood, And one for the people. Likewise, Christ, after offering his once for all sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, entered into glory and still today continues his high priestly work. We shouldn't lose sight of that. Yes, it was a once for all sacrifice, but Christ continues to do his work as the high priest on our behalf, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Again, the author of Hebrews. The Berean class is going to love this one this morning. There's a lot of Hebrews in there. Again, the author of Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But he no longer offers burnt offering on the altar. Instead, what he offers is his people. We are that offering that is being offered up to God. 
calling us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, empowering us by His Spirit to live for God the Father through Him. The burnt offering that symbolizes whole life devotion is now actualized in the lives of God's people in Christ. The burnt offering for the priests and the people would bring the rituals and sacrifices of the Day of Atonement, therefore, to a close. So that's it. That's chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, in a nutshell. Now what I want us to do is I really want us to focus on verses 20 through 22, the passage we read at the beginning. Here's why. It's because in this passage we find the Lord provided a scapegoat to bear Israel's sin away. In fact, we see the provision here of the Day of Atonement. We've looked at the importance. We've looked at the ritual itself. I want us to see this provision. We see the scapegoat received the sin of God's people. Verse 21 makes that clear, doesn't it? It says, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins. Picture it. The, the scapegoat was pulled aside. This The one has been sacrificed, the other one has. The purification offering has been offered. He comes to the second goat. He lays his hands on it. He confesses all the iniquities, all the transgressions, all the sins of the people over that goat. And mind you, the term here used for sin is not just the unintentional sin that's been covered throughout the year. right? He uses transgressions here. This is um, heart-heartedness. This is rebellion. There was hope even for the most hard-hearted Israelite on the Day of Atonement. And after the confession had taken place and the sins were transferred to the goat, the goat carries the sins of God's people away. We read at the end of verse 21, putting them on the head of the goat shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. That one who was assigned took the goat and led it outside the camp to a place that was cut off. Now, there are actually many different theories on exactly what this looked like. How far do you go, right? But the picture is the sins of Israel on a goat are taken far away and removed the sin of God's people. Right? That's what verse 22 reminds us. Look at verse 22. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Uninhabited land is just is really the, the word there just means cut off, in a, in a cut off place. See, the goat's not just taken far away, but the goat is taken to a place where it will never return. Just as the sin is taken far away, where it will never return to once again fall on the people. It's removed from God's sight. That's the picture. And isn't this a poignant reminder of what we've already learned in Leviticus? The effect of sin? We need to see that. Sin separates, as we talked about this morning, sin separates people from God. That which is sinful cannot remain in God's presence. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and they're driven from God's presence. They, they didn't have a scapegoat. They bore their own sins and carried them out of the presence of God. In the case of Israel, God graciously provides the scapegoat ritual because if not, it would be Israel having to leave the camp. Don't miss this. The fate of the scapegoat is exactly what the Israelites deserve. They deserve to be cut off from the camp of Israel. 
They deserve to be driven away from the covenant Lord. They deserve to bear their own sins into the wilderness. In fact, this ritual foreshadows the eventual consequences of Israel's ongoing serious and unrepentant sin, doesn't it? Listen, the, the scapegoat is what eventually happens to Israel. Israel bore their own sins into exile, did they not? In, in different times in Israel's history, they displayed lesser and greater degrees of faithfulness to God's law. And as history marches on, the lesser degrees became more and more prominent as a characteristic of the nation as a whole. Israel became like the nations around them. They disregarded the Lord's law and the sacrificial system that the Lord graciously gave to protect them. So, through the prophet Amos, God would explain this. And if you're a John Foreman from Switchfoot fan, you'll recognize this from one of his songs. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. I hate, I despise your feast days. This is God speaking through the prophet Amos. Very, very things we're talking about in Leviticus. God will eventually say, I hate these things. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. See, eventually the judgment of God fell on them instead of the scapegoat. In 722 B.C., northern Israel is carried away with its sins into exile. The Assyrians served as a hand of a man who's suitable, that led the Israelites into captivity. They led northern Israel away to a place where they were cut off from the land of promise and from the special presence of the Lord. How in those days they must have longed for a scapegoat. We know in 586 B.C., Judah too carried its own sins again away into the wilderness. In this case, the suitable man was the Babylonians. The southern kingdom was cut off from the promised land. They were cut off from the special presence of their Lord. How they must have longed for a scapegoat in their day. But the scapegoat they longed for would not come. Not for another 600 years. And with that said, I really want us to spend some time looking at some lessons we can learn in light of what happened to Israel. First, I'm going to give you the first two quickly, okay? First, sins that are not carried away from people eventually carry people away from the Lord. Sins that are not carried away from people eventually carry people away from the Lord. Inevitably. Right? We've seen this clearly from Leviticus. Friends, our God never changes. God will not overlook sin and will not allow sin to remain in his presence. So if sin is not disposed of, then the sinner will be. Second thing I want us to learn is the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat did not work ex opere operato. What do I mean by that? What does that mean? It simply means the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat did not work by the work themselves. The work by itself, the, the literal sending off of the, the goat accomplished nothing. 
you need to hear this. Every one of these Old Testament commands and sacrifices, they still required the same thing they require today. They required faith and repentance. God, again, God never changes. He's always required faith and repentance from his people. You couldn't just go through the motions. God required that these rituals be accompanied by repentance. We'll see this very clearly when we consider the epilogue next week. But, but David makes that point clear in Psalm 51, doesn't he? For you do not desire sacrifice or else, I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Listen, faith and repentance have always been necessary for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Repenting of sin and trusting that God will save us it was as important to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament as repentance and faith is to salvation in Christ in the New Testament. All of these considerations of the importance of the scapegoat, they ultimately find their meaning and fulfillment, though, in Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the true and better scapegoat. See, the ritual of the scapegoat ultimately prefigured the work of Christ in bearing away the sins of the world. It was meant to. This was the purpose. God is he's the, the one whose this idea was, right? He's, he's the author of Scripture. The work of Christ as our sin-bearing scapegoat is shortly foretold by Isaiah after the time of Amos' prophecy, which we read earlier. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53.6, a text we probably know very well, he explained, All we like sheep have gone, away, gone astray, we have turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're an Old Testament Israelite, you're thinking scapegoat. Isaiah also records that the suffering servant would be our sin bearer and make intercession for the transgressors. He would bear the sins of many and carry it away. John the Baptist recognized Jesus as the one who would bear the sins of the world when he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Likewise, the Apostle Paul echoes the scapegoat ritual when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him sin. That is, he put on Christ our sin. Christ bore our sin for our sake that we might be reconciled to God. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 13 that Jesus, like the scapegoat, carried our sin outside the camp when he wrote, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. See, our sins were placed on him, and he carried them outside the camp. Peter explains that, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree in 1 Peter 2, 24. Now, we're likely to miss the significance of that, right? 1 Peter 2, 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. But what we should know is that Peter was actually referring to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. Catch this. It reads this. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain on, overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land 
which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Paul actually quotes this very verse in Galatians chapter 3. He writes this. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, when Peter writes that Christ bore our sin in his body on the, on the tree, on the cross, that is, Christ took upon our sins. He carried them far away and took upon himself the curse due to those sins. He was a cursed man, though he had never sinned. He received the curse. This is, by the way, why the Jewish leaders on the day Christ was crucified demanded the men being crucified be pulled down from the crosses. Right? Because not only were they cursed, but they would curse the land. In this way, Christ is the antitype foreshadowed through the type of the scapegoat. Christ willingly took upon himself the sins of the people. He bore them outside the city on the tree, which was the curse, the penalty, and consequence due to them. And in doing so, he has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time. And so, teaches us something else, doesn't it? That the day of atonement has been replaced by the day of Calvary. The day of atonement has been replaced by the day of Calvary. Listen, the means are the same. We still must come to Christ with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Remember, Repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is an ongoing posture towards the Lord, an ever-growing hatred for sin, and an ever-increasing desire and ability to forsake our sin. But repentance is a lifestyle for the people of God. Not a lifestyle. You need to hear this. Repentance is not a lifestyle that's marked by gloominess or depression. It's a lifestyle of the people of God. It's actually just the opposite. For the people of God, repentance leads to gratitude and joy. Why? Because we know that our sins have been carried away. We could be more joyous than that. It's because repentance does not stand alone, but it's always accompanied by faith. We come to Christ trusting that He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Therefore, our sins are no more. Listen, Christian, our mortification of actual sins in our life, this is the battle, the battle we wage against the flesh. It can never and should never be confused with the guilt and power of sin that Christ has borne away. If we strive to attain a righteousness of our own, we strive in vain. Instead, we wage war against the flesh because our Lord and Savior has done away with our sin in His body. Friends, it's simply us striving to become what we already are in the sight of God. So I want us to be clear here. Jesus has borne each and every sin away forever for his people. Jesus has borne each and every sin away forever. So as Paul writes in in Romans chapter 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And he concludes that glorious chapter with neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Christ is our true and better scapegoat. And he has bore our sins away. Each and every one, actually and forever. So let me ask you this morning. What plagues you from your past? What, what sin, what transgression continues to tempt you to despair? What sin continues to define who you think you are? If what Scripture tells us about our sin in God's sight is true, and we know that it is, then we must learn to see our sin the same way. We are tempted to throw contempt on the sin-bearing work of Christ by allowing our past to dictate our present. Our sins have been removed from God's sight. In God's mind, to recall our sins is to recall Christ's perfect once and for all sacrifice. Do you understand that? So it should be with us. When, when Satan tempts us to despair, to recall our sins, oh, what wretched man am I? The saints must learn to recall the reflection and glory of Jesus' sin-bearing scapegoat work. We say, amen, what a wretched man am I. Wretched is my sin, but more glorious, more faithful, and more perfect is my God and Savior. He did not simply carry away my past sins. No, they have all been borne away, each and every one. What joy and gratitude the saints have in light of this truth. And so in conclusion, I, I want us to return to where we began. Consider again the whipping boy. A servant who was beaten to protect the king. The son of the king. Now consider the Prince of Peace, the Son of the King, the Son of the King of the Universe, the Prince of the Universe, that was beaten and killed to protect his servants. I think our only response has to be what the Apostle Paul's was at the end of his doxology in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. 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 Let's stand together as we close this morning. Gracious Father, what comfort there is in these words that though our sins, they were many, your mercy is more. That a goat was able to bear the sins of Israel away even for a moment. If that's the case, Lord, then how much more your son was able to bear away the sins of your people forever. Nothing can separate us from your love. Regardless of the lies of the accuser, regardless of the ongoing battle we fight with our flesh,
It is true for those who are in Christ that we have victory in our Savior. Therefore, our lives must reflect a life of gratitude and joy grounded in the sin-bearing work of your Son. Father, I pray that we would be a people marked by joy, by constant gratitude, by worship. Father, that we would continue to finish the gospel. I know many, including myself, struggle with the idea Lord, because we're constantly becoming more and more aware of our own sinfulness, we, we say, oh, how wretched am I? Father, I can't be used for your kingdom. I can't possibly grow to learn your word more. I can't possibly be used in my local church to serve. I'm too sinful. Father, that we would finish. We finish and know that you have bore our sins away. That we are standing in the righteousness of your Son. And because of that, oh, we have a great cause for tremendous joy and gratitude. And ultimately worship. That is your will for us. That we would be a people of prayer, joy, and thanksgiving. What reason we find for that here in your word. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Listen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. As we come to our time of invitation, invitation call is clear for the saint, for those of us in Christ. When you repent, first off, we, we, we certainly need to be about the business of repenting of our sin, right? We understand who we were, what Christ has done. It's the mark of a Christian that we're constantly repenting of sin. But when we do, Friend, we must not stop at the wretchedness of ourselves. We must continue to the grace and mercy of our God, which would lead us, therefore, to joy and gratitude in His grace and ultimately worship. Is that what your life is marked by this week? Maybe you are in the midst of struggling with sin. Maybe first this morning, as a child of God, you need to confess your sin to somebody and bring it to light. So therefore, listen, understand the connection here. If you are right now as a Christian living in unconfessed sin, and you are truly a Christian, you are missing out on the joy and gratitude of, of repentance. How, how often do we view it that way? Right, right now, here's what the enemy wants you to think. The enemy wants you to think, I've got this sin, it's ongoing in my life. If I confess this, it's going to be miserable for me. Look, friend, yeah, sin has consequences. But the reality is, the state of your soul was more important. And, and when you confess sin, take it from somebody who is, who is quite sinful, who has confessed a bit of sin in his day, sin that has had consequences in my life. Friends, I will tell you, there is no comparison to the joy and gratitude of knowing that though I am sinful and wretched, my God and Savior is greater and there is joy and gratitude in knowing that He has bore my sins away. If you're sitting here this morning, you're wrestling with that internally. Don't. Confess it to a brother and sister in Christ. Let us pray for you. Let's celebrate and fight for the joy and gratitude that comes in knowing that our sins have been borne away. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you know that you've not had any joy and gratitude because you know that you've actually never repented of your sins. You know that the reality is, is, is you're the first goat. You're the goat who's going to be sacrificed. 
You are, you are the reality of the scapegoat, except you're not bearing the sins of others. You're bearing the sins of yourself. Friends, hear the message of the gospel. You will, apart from repenting and turning by faith into the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will be like the scapegoat and you will bear your sins away. But even longer than the east is from the west, you'll bear them for eternity. And I, listen, I love you. I don't want you to do that. God in his goodness and mercy and grace has provided the only way. It's a way that's prefigured in the scapegoat and it is realized in Jesus Christ. Our true and better scapegoat has bore our sins away. If you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sins, repented of them, and placed your, finished, placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then please make today that day. I'll be down front after our service. If, if, if somebody's talking to me and it doesn't look like they're talking to me about spiritual things, push them out of the way and say, I need to talk to you about spiritual things. I Believe me, at this church they won't be offended by that. But if the Lord is doing work in your life right now, please, after the service, come down and talk to me. Whatever we can do, we'd love to share with you more about this wonderful faith we have in Christ.